Welcome to Let's Draws for a Minute, the podcast which took a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 masterpiece and is now setting sail into uncharted waters to discover the world beyond Jaws. I'm Sarah Buddery. And I'm MJ Smith. And this week we're joined um, by returning guest uh, from way back when, um, Andy Godian. Welcome back to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me back, guys. It feels long ago that we were discussing Mayor Vaughan on a on a <laughs> on that ferry across that short pathway and now here we are yeah. <laughs> gosh that was so early <laughs> yeah it was such a long time ago it was like a lifetime act ago. one <laughs> yeah wow it was i i can remember the episode number and i don't usually remember the episode numbers because i've got a terrible memory but it was episode eight and i remember oh that gosh. because so it's early. the first it's the first episode that we had the theme song Oh, yes, that's I don't right. know why. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that information, but it's just like locked in my brain that it was episode eight. That was the episode you were on, and that's the episode that the theme song like a landmark episode. <laughs> some have said, yeah, truly. <laughs> yep. Um, but you're here to talk about Empire of the Sun, um, mm. which is a 1987 historical epic uh, coming of age drama film. Um, and another adaptation of a historical book. Um, it's a semi-autobi- based on a semi-autobiographical novel uh, of the same name by J.G. Ballard. Um, and it's about a young English boy who struggles to survive under the Japanese occupation of China during World War II. Um, and it stars Christian Bale, John Malkovich, Nigel Havers, uh, Miranda Richardson, uh, and Joe Pantoliano, and a very, very young Ben Stiller. Um, <laughs> And it was nominated for six Oscars, and much like The Color Purple, won zero of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Andy, what led you to uh, to Empire of the Sun for this uh, this this uh, return trip to LJ Fam? I'd say um, for listeners who don't remember, I also run a, a Spielberg centric podcast called mm-hmm. Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, and this is one that we've um, covered on ourselves that we did it last summer so it's still still quite fresh but um even before that it's one i'd seen as a teenager and one i always remember quite fondly and i think seeing it the first time as a teenager is quite a good age to see it i was around like 14 so not that much older than uh uh jamie is in the film itself but for me it's always one of those ones that always kind of gets forgotten about when you're discussing spielberg career overall it's one of those one of those most underrated i'd argue and it comes at this kind of interesting point that you're you're at in this run where he is kind of trying to pepper in more quote-unquote adult dramas in between making kind of you know masterclass blockbusters in the indiana jones franchise and it's what i've coined on our own podcast as a bit of a a growing pains trilogy of sorts for spielberg outside of mm-hmm. Indiana Jones because he's got color purple this and then always which feels him trying to kind of rework himself into someone who's dealing with more 
films for adults, movies with a bit more drama, a bit more romance and a bit more heft to them. And he's kind of working through the fog a little bit. Like I think with the case of The Color Purple, it's a bit of a miscasting of director, so to speak. Uh, this feels much more in tune with um, the, particularly the kind mm-hmm. of Spielberg who comes a bit more fully formed with Schindler's List and even to today when you see him doing predominantly more historical dramas. And I think it's one of his best of this kind of period for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, it's ahead, it's weird to to look back on this period of Spielberg's career when he was still the blockbuster guy mm. and not the historical drama guy because as we noted in in our color purple episode that's kind of all he does now. Uh a few exceptions to yeah. that Ready Player, Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> enough said about that. <laughs> the BFG. Yeah, I guess that. Can, yeah, that's more in the the blockbuster realm than it is the sort of historical drama, isn't it? But yeah, this it, it it's so strange to in the way that we're watching these Spielberg films mm. as well is like where these are the the unusual films or the films where you know we were back to back on Indiana Jones films almost or yeah a lot of kind of big blockbuster films we had ET in there as well um and then it was a a, a real change of pace like particularly when when we went did we go from Temple of Doom to I think that is Color what Purple? follows was yeah that? yeah yeah geez that was a <laughs> that was quite a that was quite an about turn but yeah. this is one of the things we criticised, or one of the problems we had with The Colour Purple was the fact that it tonally doesn't always get it right in terms yeah. of the Spielberg comedy lightness whimsy and then the absolute horror of what happens to that poor woman. And I think this... it balances that a lot more effectively and that mm. makes it a better film because of it um and the reason why it works is because it is spielberg doing what he does so well which is seeing things through the perspective of a child yeah um i should have mentioned this is my first time watching it so this was one of my my blind spot (laughs) spielbergs that i have now now seen and now ticked off the list um i wasn't really sure what to expect from it but went into it quite intimidated by the runtime <laughs> as i quite often am when i see a film that's that's kicking two and a half hours i'm like <laughs> why uh but it, it i i did feel the length of this film at times but not as much as i did in the color purple i yeah. think um because i liked i liked this film's viewpoint i liked it being from this child's perspective and the way that he sees war and the horrifying things that happen around him, but the way he approaches them as a child Mm -hmm. and grows up over the course of the film. I mean, this feels like a film that only Spielberg could have directed. And I absolutely mean that as a compliment. (laughs) Like it's just got him. It's got his, his grubby little fingerprints all (laughs) over it. It just feels so much like a Spielberg film, which I wasn't expecting. So I was very pleasantly surprised by that you know it's it's interesting that you say that it feels like a film that only spielberg could mm. direct because <laughs> this was originally intended for david lean mm. and yeah uh, yeah 
I totally see this as a David Lean. Like, like it almost feels like a David Lean cover sure. song where like, yeah. like, like <laughs> I see so much David Lean influence in the way, and particularly in the way he shoots this movie. Like it, it looks like a David Lean movie to me, um, but it has that Spielberg child point of view that I don't know if David Lean would have been able to pull mm. off um, yeah. because I know like Lawrence of Arabia, he's, there's this weird magic trick that Lawrence of Arabia has where Lawrence is a very whimsical character. Well, he's no, okay. So he's not a whimsical character, but he's a brilliant strategist that feels like he's more aloof than he's letting on. Yeah. There's that twinkle in his eye. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, much of that comes from Peter O'Toole looking like a grown up version of a child. (laughs) And um, (laughs) here you have the opposite where uh, Christian Bale looks like Christian Bale with Benjamin Button disease. Um, (laughs) Like it just, like it just looks, it just looks like you compressed Christian Bale, right? He looks exactly the same. And he's still got like he's got like a like a like a man sized head on this child's body, um, like he really had to grow into his head and fa- and face, and so it really helps to see him grow up over the course of the film. Um, mm. Particularly at the end, he starts like once the the camp gets you know bombed and they have to leave. This character really goes through the ringer. And sure I re- that's my favorite part of the movie. I think that's the one that is like where he kind of cracked the code of the historical drama and the tone it needs. Um, up until then, I feel like it still had a little bit of the same problem as the color purple in as far as tone, mm. where it just like it sort of feels like he's viewing this POW camp as kind of through some rose colored glasses. Like, I don't think it was all just like running around wheeling and dealing with the regulars or whatever, the way it kind of seems. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, uh, that part I did not like, but I think that it, it ends with an evolved Spielberg historical drama that is then paved the way for him to go and make Schindler's list. Yeah. Which has much more of that tone. You could particularly, I think the first act of this as well is, kind of shows that strength is uh particularly when it comes to showing the, the chaos of um the international yes. settlement getting um, finally getting mm. taken over by the japanese forces after living for quite some year like four years um with the rest of shanghai occupied by the chinese and then this uh, the japanese and that kind of naivety that falls over them that they think they're safe because they're westerners living in this settlement that's completely Mm. cut off from the realities of what's happening to the rest of the city and that kind of chaos in the moment when um pearl harbor has happened and jamie gets separated from his mother that those particularly those crowd scenes and the and then the kind of postscript to to that of jamie kind of like lost and alone and desperately trying to get himself arrested pretty much and surrendering (laughs) going through these empty houses of like really rich decadent kind of aesthetics and like even that some of the imagery within it is some of the most chaotic and haunting that particularly to this point that Spielberg's done I think to particularly that scene where he goes to his house and he sees the kind of he manages to put the pieces together of a of the struggle that's happened 
mm. we assume with his mother from the mm. powder and on on the floor that's been left behind in the kind of wreckage of this raided house and it's, it's moments like that which yes do kind of come inspired from the book but spielberg knows how to make them work in terms of um really driving the confusion and uh horror that this kid would have felt suddenly being alone in this very chaotic environment Hmm. yeah that scene when he gets separated from his mum was very traumatic Mm. to watch uh and it's sort of the 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 plane as his you know the the little toy Mm -hmm. his sort of like talisman that he like carries with him throughout the film but the fact that going back for it it's like you can see it happening yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's like why (laughs) why would you go back for it you can get another plane (laughs) yeah it's okay um but yeah that and the scene as well when even before that where they're they're driving and the crowds around the car are just like Mm. these people are just crushed and it's you get that that feeling then of it it doesn't i don't think this film necessarily addresses as much as it should that uh these english people shouldn't be there either um (laughs) which we we had a a little conversation uh about that in our in our dms uh didn't we mj (laughs) last night but it's uh, yeah I, i i guess that's it's this isn't the story that that this film is trying to right. tell and in the mm. moments when you see um jamie and his family and and the other sort of um english people caught up in all of this chaos it's this sense of well you know it doesn't matter who they are the color of their skin where they come from originally they are just all caught up in this in this chaos that that is happening and it, it does a very good job of establishing that chaos and then the the contrast with then when he is sort of relatively settled and is in yeah. is in the camps and you talked about it mj as sort of being you know looking at things through sort of rose tinted glasses and i i do get that but also i think that's i think it's quite deliberate i think there were bad i mean we see some of the bad things right basie um john malkovich character mm. sort of getting beaten up and bad things are clearly happening but for for jamie it is not fun but we're seeing it so clearly from his perspective that yeah he is kind of you know running around like playing games making the best of the situation because that's what spielberg is trying to put across is how a child views war and it's it's in that and it's in the way that he jamie more than any other character in this sort of has relatively good relationships with everyone that he meets he is sort of he shows the um the guy in charge sort of respect and he learns some japanese and he is friendly with the american side and the british side and he forms that friendship with that the japanese pilot as well like he doesn't sort of see like these people bad these people good it's just like these are people i'm in this situation and he's just trying to make the best of it i guess yeah, yeah, it's kind of born born out of a. He's so desperate to not be alone that he has. He's conscious of really showing how useful he can be as well for to like every mm, pretty much every corner mm-hmm. of the camp. Yeah, he he. What am I trying to say? It 
definitely feels like something a kid would do in that situation is to kind of just make the best of it right like if you go and watch mm-hmm. the the um short like there's some short form documentary kind of home movie-ish type things about life in the japanese internment camps in california during world war ii and mm. um <clears throat> you know not the brightest spot in american history mm. and uh a lot of those, even if you go back and watch them, like you understand how horrific it was that we did that to those people. But a lot of them kind of just show day to day life. So it's just people kind of living, right? Like it mm. just kind of doing laundry, kids running around, playing with each other. And like, I can't imagine it was a good quality of life or like it, there's like, it doesn't show like the full on horrors of what was probably happening there. Um, but. It does, uh, <clears throat> it does, to me, I don't think it does something that I think later Spielberg would do, which is show that this is his coping mechanism until later. Yeah. So, like, I feel like, I feel like Spielberg mm-hmm. now would show up front that this is his coping mechanism. And here, it almost feels like he's kind of got a victory under his belt in this, in that he is now broken from his affluent lifestyle and found something kind of more real and grounded within this mm. and i'm not saying that didn't happen i'm sure it did like ballard i was reading some quotes from him and he said that you know he was just kind of looking for heroes where he could get him he'd been separated yeah. from his 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 dad and you know mm. the he loved aviation so seeing the japanese pilots like it was really cool to him because he was just a kid and he was going yeah. through this really mm-hmm. traumatic situation but i feel like a, a movie that spielberg makes now shows like oh hey he um he's doing this to cope with not having to face the horrors of what's going on in this camp or being separated from his family. And then when he breaks later on it, like all of that really comes crashing down even harder for the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think like, particularly speaking to life in the camp, I wonder like, cause I know a lot of the particularly British cast members have t- spoken about like Paul McGann, who's, really barely in the final cut is talking a lot about how much of their um roles within it was were really cut le- they're left on the cutting room floor so i think a lot of that who knows might have got lost out in the pacing because that that is particularly the strength the strength of Ballard's book but again naturally to the form you can go into a, a bit more vivid detail about the kind of what's going out going on on the outskirts and how this kid's kind of choosing to really focus in on day-to-day tasks and routine um and building these relationships and hero worshiping like you say um it, it yeah it's completely a coping co- coping mechanism that really builds into that sense of slingshotting back to back to it when he realizes that there's not really uh, again not to get too ahead of ourselves but like when <laughs> the war does end and they march out of the camp who his first instinct when he realizes there's not really any anywhere safe to go is to go back to the place where he felt most safe and felt like there was an environment that he could thrive in that's his instinct as a kid is to kind of go back to that safe spot and i think the film like does have that tension where it is a bit too that's maybe where it gets a bit too whimsical with the perspective is in these moments in the camp but uh, i do like that kind of tension there where you yourself as a viewer know that like everything's not so cozy in this clearly very uh sparse and um 
malnourished environment that we see on, on the faces of a lot of the adult cast members particularly mm-hmm. yeah and he it's 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 almost like he finds this out for rebellion against a completely normal life right like nothing in his life mm-hmm. before this was bad by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination like it was it was bad in the sense that he probably would have ended up being a really bad person um, if he would have grown up entirely <laughs> in, in that situation because he's like kind of a prick to the uh, to the 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 house staff. Um, oh yeah, yeah. See, like he's and they really make entitled. their feelings known. <laughs> yeah, he's very entitled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's he's really entitled, and this kind of breaks him of that, which is like kind of a good thing. But mm-hmm. I just feel like the way in which it shows that he's been broken by it is a little too uh, squeaky clean than it probably actually was until it's not, right? Like I said, that last act is really, really great at kind of making up that ground. But I think that yeah. a, a more mature filmmaker um, within this genre, like what Spielberg is now, would show that up front as well and then show like, okay, here's here's like, he's broken, but he's going to cope through this. Here's a second act of him coping and everything seems happy-go-lucky, but you know he's kind of struggling with this internally. And then the bombing raid happens and it all comes like, you know, it's just, Mm. it's a ton of bricks at that point. Mm. But also, he's very good in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's that's kind of the key of it, isn't it? Like the, the whole, the main reason why I think this film works is him and particularly that tension that he's playing itself himself as that kid that's kind of on the precipice of having to having to grow up and being forced into a situation where he has to he's got to choose to grow up pretty fast and there's still this kind of tension in himself as to want to hold on to some of that childhood whimsy and and like even just from Mm. the off having it from a child in the middle of uh shanghai world war ii this is not a perspective that n- many other war films offer is usually a, a soldier on the front lines or what have you not really quite so vicar- viciously vicariously with the um victim victims as it were of war that aren't on the battlefield that are the ones who are kind of left without a home and kind of thrown and thrown into environments that they've never experienced or never really could have anticipated particularly in this coddled um, life that he has experienced in Shanghai previously. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really one of the first moments in this that I sort of I found really quite striking is when uh, so they've gone to the like the costume party yeah. thing. Uh, side note: Why were there clowns? <laughs> they didn't need to be clowns. I was like, this. Is, the, is, the, is, the, is the striking moment? It's a weird clowns. ass party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, what was, that, what was that party? There's clowns and Santa, and then like they're dressed. Was it Halloween or what? Well, it would. It was on the eve of Pearl it's... Harbor, so it would have been in the. When... Oh yeah, it would have been yeah, December sixth, nineteen forty-one. So I'm assuming a Christmas yeah. party. <laughs> okay. I, I just a rich white people party yeah yeah that's what it is but yeah no need for clowns uh <laughs> didn't need to have that there but no the, the serious point is the when jim sort of like takes himself off and mm. then he finds the the crashed plane 
and he does what absolutely any kid would do and he climbs right on in I'm there and get, he's sort of playing <laughs> <laughs> he's like playing war and you know playing around with the with the gun and mm-hmm. obviously you know it's it's crashed it's not it's not going anywhere it's not doing anything but it then immediately after that sort of like stumbles across the the japanese soldiers yeah and that's it's really like striking the, the yeah mm-hmm. going from sort of playing war to the reality of it is such a it's just so brilliantly done i mean there are so many moments in this where i was just like god damn it spielberg yeah. <laughs> son, of, <laughs> son of a bitch you've done it again like there, yeah. it's just incredible moment i mean i i loved the the opening and how it sort of like goes full circle with the final shot as well with mm. like the it starts mm. off with the coffins in the water and then the suitcase in the water at the end mm-hmm. and i was just like oh I, lo- I just love a i love a full circle moment uh so yeah. many other great shots in this i'm sure we'll get into but yeah that well it just that represents sort of like the up. death of his childhood right yeah oh whereas mm. the coffins in the beginning represent kind of the death of the innocence of china within world war yeah II just it's so it's so simple but yeah it's just oh chef's kiss yeah. incredible yeah. <laughs> but the yeah this this moment of sort of being confronted yeah. uh, head on quite literally a... with the reality of war is is so 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 good it's built up on so many images of kind of like encroaching invasion and just that this impending mm. sense of something is about to invade and like even speaking to that shot of the reefs and coffins in the river they're all pushed aside by these Japanese warships and just mm-hmm. like that instantly puts you in the oh this this whole city's on the brink of something really quite cataclysmic happening well, and then even to the point disregard, yeah. Yeah. total disregard for the humanity of the people of China by exactly. the army right mm. and even to the point where mm-hmm. this J- Jamie running out into the garden and seeing the plane and the um, Japanese troops is right it feels so so close to where this ridiculous party is happening and mm. it's even to sort of that wake up call for all the adults in the room who really should have gotten into action a bit quicker than this <laughs> just all the, all there just being like oh okay um right let's all leave and yeah. it's from that moment they like everyone starts kicking it up a gear and things feel like they're building to that in- inevitable kind of tragedy of families being torn apart because mm. what's so strange as well is i mean they say it right off the bat in the kind of the the text at the beginning is that a lot of these places where the british were living look like liverpool and look like mm. surrey mm-hmm. and that house that they're that they're at for the party looks like a like an english manor house so you it it's it's startling because i mean it looked obviously <clears throat> My house is nowhere near as fancy, but I live in Surrey. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, there are houses like that, like not very far away. So, and when you're surrounded in, you know, these, all of these sort of English people having this quite lavish party and they're all in costume or whatever. I forgot. You just forget for a minute because you're like, oh, this is in England. That house looks yeah. like it is in like a nice affluent part of Surrey. So mm-hmm. then it's even more striking when you suddenly see the 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 troops appear and you know just over the literally like in their back garden almost i mean it's a pretty big garden but you know 
that's how close they are to you know the the, the idyllic sort of manor house <laughs> and yet in the back garden is like the the enemy if you will like yeah. knocking at the door it's it's so oh it's so good <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also that scene you know you were talking about how um most the perspective of most war films is just soldiers mm. on the battlefield and so we don't see mm. the mm-hmm. the cost of the victims or anything like that but it's really interesting that like they give Jim a moment that feels like it's equated to that where he has to set the pheasant traps and it right, feels yeah. like they like it connects him to kind of what soldiers on the battlefield are doing in a very whimsical way but a very tense way too because you understand that like this kid is fucked if he gets caught yeah and um it, it's the tension of that scene is so incredible like when when that soldier finds the shoes and starts <clears throat> walking around looking for him the way he shoots that mm. is so great by one just keeping every like as many times as possible keeping both of them in frame where like christian bale is right behind him or right next to him in the in the vegetation and then there's this shot that's from the ground perspective of the the japanese soldier stepping over like the the essentially the line to go talk to 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 go get the kid the kid he befriended who was playing with the toy airplane um Mm -hmm. the 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 japanese Mm -hmm. kid that he befriended that's playing with the toy airplane and the the camera like follows him over that line but it's shot from the ground so the the soldier looks a hundred feet tall um like he's just looming in this shot i mean it 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 almost you know feels like it's out of like a kaiju movie like it's it feels like this (laughs) this this soldier is looming so large in the fate of jim's character yeah that Mm -hmm. this could be the defining moment for him and then there's the reveal that it's not, but it's so tense. And so he just looks, he fills up the frame so like menacingly. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah. And even to the point when he's uh, in the camp itself and trying to find, but like there's moments where it's Spielberg working that kind of horror thriller motive again. And also the balance with the sense of awe, even within these moments of, terror you think about the particularly the the raid that the american bomber raid that happens on on the camp and just quite the the spectacle of that and the kind of excitement that jamie feels as well is kind of that that antithesis to that kind of wartime experience being drawn into the camp where yes you kind of get him to the scene you're talking mj it's him as almost being positioned as a ground troop and then there's this more overtly um, dramatic way that the war does show itself on the camp mm-hmm. and how that's kind of used as like that that big moment of Spielberg spectacle and if you're to listen to Ben Stiller the kind of the setup of that sequence is <laughs> largely what inspired Tropic Thunder from yeah I was I was reading that and I was just like how you worked on that for like over 20 years. 
<laughs> gestating away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm glad that the confirmation that it is Ben Stiller was confirmed because I was like, that really, that that guy looks like Ben Stiller, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't look it up. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah it's him. <laughs> I'm not going crazy. Uh... It was funny because he was the only one I remembered for some reason. And he's barely in the movie. I forgot Joe Pamliano was in this movie until he showed up. And I was like, hey. Hey, (laughs) there he is. (laughs) I mean, he shows up in almost every movie. So I feel like it's a a high chance of him him appearing. Uh, Malkovich is really fucking good in this movie. Yeah, he is great. So good. And that, that character is so interesting Uh because i feel like he he sort of the way jamie meets him is like this is gonna be the guy who takes him under his wing and sort of looks after him and on numerous occasions he just kind of shuns him or like turns his back on him like when he gets into the truck and jamie is like clinging onto the back or something isn't he to try and like go with him screaming his name yeah and he's just like nah and there's other i'm sure there's other moments as well like later on when it's kind of very clear that i mean jamie sort of seems to particularly idolize the the american group like he sort of spends quite a lot of time hanging out with them but it's this absence of a father figure for him that he is sort of trying to find it in lots of other people i mean you sort of see him I mean, mostly sort of gravitates towards the kind of male authority figures. So mm-hmm. he tries to find it in in Basie. He tries to find it in the Doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, something he is missing in <laughs> missing in his life. But it's yeah, it, it's John Malkovich is so good in this. So complicated yeah. as well as a yeah. character. I just found him very very interesting. I found myself kind of wanting to know more about him like what's his what's his story and he does yeah yeah he's he's really charismatic but also just like a total a-hole most of the time too like he's so yeah he's so <laughs> selfish and out for himself and that never changes yeah um, mm. right like it's not it's not like quint right where we kind of understand where he's coming from a little bit more you kind of never get a beat on this guy like he's he's really yeah. hard to pin down as as like a person and the way Malkovich chooses to play that is, it's really good. I kind of can't believe he wasn't nominated for anything for this. Because mm. mm. he's someone that you should really kind of, like for the amount of times that he does kind of turn on his uh, affections for Jim, it's, like, it's very manipulative. And you feel you don't, mm. you feel like you shouldn't quite have as much sympathy for this guy as you do. But it's the kind of hangdog nature, I think, almost in Malkovich. Malkovich's yeah. performance that particularly keeps you keeps you on hook and uh, I always like that particularly that scene where he first runs into um, Basie and uh, Frank mm. um, in Shanghai it's got this almost like kind of Honest John and Pinocchio sort of uh, mm-hmm. feel to mm-hmm. it where it's mm. just like they, they see the kind of potential in this kid and and how it can help them in their situation and sometimes yeah. it's interesting to see how that dynamic does shift back and forth a little bit in the camp, particularly when Basie's kind of stripped of what uh, kind of almost, I almost say, cr- 
street cred in the camp almost and the mm-hmm. kind of what authorities managed to build for himself and uh mm-hmm. and ultimately like for jim as well because like speaking about how there's many different routes he could kind of go down from when he's in his kind of coddled life and then when he's kind of following basie as an example and you feel like that's also quite a treacherous path that he could end up down but you get a a weird sense of hope from his rejection of Basie at the uh towards the end of the film. Yeah. Um when he offers to help mm. find his parents but Jim particularly following the death of the young Japanese pilot um completely outright rejects him and s- stays behind. Um so he is he is a fascinating character throughout this whole thing and particularly the way that dynamic shifts both within the camp mm. and towards Jim himself. I got a little uh, sort of Oliver Twist vibes from it as mm. well, Absolutely, like yeah. really relying on this person, knowing they're not a very good person, the person trying to take advantage of them. He literally tries to sell him yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> and then realizes that he's not worth he's not worth anything because he's like skinny and scrawny, and he's he's not going to make him any money. So it's he doesn't he's not like oh. This, this poor little kid, I'm going to take him in and look after him. He is like, no, what can I get out? <laughs> what can I get out of him? And that's established very early mm-hmm. on. So, yeah, I love the Pinocchio comparison, but it definitely got me thinking about the sort of Oliver Twist and where he ends up as well and what happens to him. It, yeah. Yeah, felt similar. It's also really interesting because it's got this... Um, the way that resolves, too, is he completely rejects him, but he still shows up and has this like weird, no hard feelings type of attitude. Like yeah. when he gives him the Hershey mm. bar, right? Like, cause that's been a running joke for the whole movie. And he actually gives him the Hershey bar, right? Like you kind of think it's going to be his, his final sort of fuck you to him. And then he actually extends like the, the Hershey bar. And it's sort of like one that, that oddly enough is a big journey back to normalcy for what, the end of the war and also is just this weird sort of to borrow a phrase from simon and garfunkel dangling conversation between him and ba- bassy where it's just like i just have a really complicated relationship with each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's an interesting antithesis as well to the more kind of clean cut father figure that you get in dr rawlins as well the guy's trying to bring a bit more everyday normal ordinary structure to jim by kind of trying to establish a sense of schooling um what it be but the you don't get a sense that jim's quite so keen to accept that um kind of um authority figure when there's so many others to choose from (laughs) in this Mm. camp (laughs) Yeah. yeah he does seem to be more drawn to the the sort of the 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 bad boys <laughs> the ones with yeah. a bit of an edge rather than like <laughs> yeah. the doctor seems like a a nice guy i mean it, it, they have that moment later on it's it's him who comforts him when he sort of has that moment of realization of well joy turning to just mm. absolute fear and terror when he sort of breaks down and says you know he's not sure if he can remember what his parents look like yeah. it's the, the doctor who sort of carries carries him down and looks after him and that's a really uh, a powerful moment but yeah it does it does just seem, I guess as well, this is an accurate sort of depiction of, of being a child in a situation like this, that you are just going to try whatever you need in that moment 
you're going to try and find it in someone. Yeah. And that's that's what Jim seems to do in the way he sort of uh, mixes and mingles around around the camp. I mean, even sort of, you know, with the, the Japanese side as well. Like, he seems to sort of at least recognize that he needs to show some respect. Yeah. Um, well, it's even from the maybe off. Sort of, you know, that he expresses mm. like even when before this happens he's got a really strong respect and admiration for particularly japanese pilots that um yes yeah ultimately leads to being quite a useful tool for him when he ends up in this environment for sure mm, yeah mm-hmm. well and, but he he like very much rejects mr and mrs victor right like mm. they they're sort of his de facto mm-hmm. guardians, essentially, right? Like they're the ones who are yeah. They're they're basically the room taking, with. Yeah, he shares the room with them. Mm-hmm. Like they're letting them stay with him, et cetera, et cetera. And like, he's just like completely dismissive of them, almost like zero <laughs> care for these people whatsoever. Um, mm. And it's it's really weird because he, I mean, it, it it's not that he's he doesn't care because he has that line where he's like, you know, I'm gonna I'll, I'll tell my parents that you took care of me while I was in here. So he, it's not that he's unappreciative, but he just like, he treats them the worst out of anyone else in the movie. Like he just very much barely considers them where he's like very like kind of kind and considerate of almost everyone else in the camp. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. They're, they're the most obvious like replacement for his Mm -hmm. parents as well. Right. Not just because it is, you know, man and a woman whatever it's like they they are kind to him and uh, some of the other characters particularly basie just aren't (laughs) so it's weird that that is what he gravitates towards yeah and and then there's also just that it kind of plays into again that slight um there's the bigger kind of scope of loss of innocence being a child put through a wartime experience but it's more also that kind of slight less of childhood innocence of just starting to grow up a little bit more as a and to on the cusp of adolescence and there's that weird kind of tension with mrs victor particularly because he he starts to not be able to view her as as a kind of paternal figure because he's got these other complicated figures towards like um hinting at kind of more of a sexual awakening as he gets older and so there's also that weird kind of tension to to them as these substitute figures as well i would argue yeah i um i really like that scene because i've never seen spielberg explore something like that yeah before yeah. or since it feels like is this the only sex scene he's ever done uh, i think there's one in munich okay if i remember correctly <laughs> but it's, it does feel weird to say spielberg sex scene doesn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, i thought it was handled so like deftly like it's not it's not creepy like it's weird for sure right but you also be, the yeah. whole situation that he's in is weird and like he is a teenage child like who's got who's like got budding sexuality within him and so it just like it 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 was i thought it was really fascinating because i think most directors they wouldn't be able to thread that needle as well as 
Spielberg did, which is weird because Spielberg like does not really do any sort of like really sexual exploration at all in his in his yeah. films. And this does not like it does not make it seem creepy that he's doing this. Like he's like it, it almost the clinical nature of it almost is why it works. And I think yeah. that's why Spielberg was like the person to do it. Because it's kind of like, oh, I don't understand what this means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like edu- right? So, like, I, I feel like... The naivety works. <laughs> the naivety works, and just, like, I was thinking about it and was like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, I guess I went through a health class when I was around that age, right? Like, I went through a class yeah, that taught me the 14, inner workings 15, of this, but, like, yeah. you don't have that here. And mm. so, you know, he's he's getting it where he can, essentially. Like, I know that sounds creepy, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> no, I totally know, get what you mean. <laughs> It's yeah, at that he's... point of age where you need these important lessons, really, and no one's no one's quite offering to give him those ones yet at this, yeah. in this camp. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I guess, the the time of how old he is when when this film yeah. is set. He would be learning all of these things. I mean, you know, hate the phrase, but like university of life is is yeah. kind of yeah. what he is experiencing right now. He is learning learning all of the things he needs to learn about the world yeah. in this kind of situation that that he is in and just kind of having to take these lessons wherever he can find them just in the same way that he's having to for sure there's find quite a, the the people quite a good line from ballad um that i heard in a documentary on this where he says like the whole experience in the camp was put simply an unsentimental education and i think that kind of speaks to the point that you're making there where you are just grabbing what life lessons you can that are on offer to you within this very, very uh, coarse and hostile environment. Um, mm-hmm. You've got to find the comfort and the and the learnings where yeah. you can, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask what you guys thought about the fact that they didn't switch out an actor, because he's supposed to be mm. 16 um, at this point, right? He's like 12 when uh, the when he first yeah i think it's it's colored a little older Mm. in this one just because i think bale himself was a bit of an older child so in the Mm. in the novel when um pearl harbor happens he's um i believe he's about um 11 so by the time he gets to about 1944 45 towards the end of his time in the camp he is about 14 15 yeah so yeah yeah so he's Um, like 15 16 in this but i was thinking about it it was it was weird uh i had this weird moment where i was like oh it's four years later and i was like oh god he's supposed to be 16 like thinking about how much the stranger things kids changed from like when they started the show at 12 <laughs> yeah. to when, like, season three when they're like 16 uh, god who are, the, who are these creepy adults <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i was just like oh wow like I was like, he would look way different in just that four years. Like, it it didn't take me out of the movie, but I thought it was an interesting decision to, like, keep the same kid, uh, mm. even though it's a four-year difference, and not really age him up at all. Um, yeah. I, I, I thought it was a good decision because Christian Bale, I think, embodies the character so well, but I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I don't, I don't know if people would buy this today. Yeah. Mm. See, it took me it, it took me a minute. I mean, it was a very quick minute, but a minute to sort of go, "Oh, that's still like that's still him." Cuz I felt that there when it did sort of time jump, I there was enough about him even in just the way he carried himself and his demeanor that sort of felt older. So even yeah. if he physically sort of hadn't 
you know, the or yeah, <laughs> the the size of him or the look of him or anything hadn't sort of aged up by as much as it should have done. I I bought it. Uh, yeah, I think it also helps as yeah. well because he's in the he's in this camp for these years. He's not going to get the right nourishment or what have you to grow right. up in quite the the way he should. So the fact that he still kind of looks like, and he's he's much more gaunt in these moments as well. Mm-hmm. So Christian Bale getting in on the method acting of uh, changing his body up um, from a very early age. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, this explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the machinist. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> like... <laughs> so, so I think that I element that... certainly helps it land a bit easier than it would um, in, yeah. a, in other circumstances. Yeah. I thought, we might have mentioned this already, but I thought Christian Bale was terrific mm. in this. Uh, I really rate him as an actor, generally. And while it was quite distracting, because as, as MJ said, it looks like Christian Bale <laughs> with just a tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny, tiny body. Tiny, Bale. <laughs> <laughs> it's, very, it's very strange. I was I was referring to him as a Little, little baby Bale throughout the whole yeah <laughs> baby Bale and then I realised it sounded like <laughs> yeah, I realised it sounded like baby Bale like the cheese didn't say it too fast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little baby Bale um, but I thought that he like considering he carries this whole ass yeah. film I thought he was really he's rarely off screen really good it's, in it's it it's a lot to yeah. ask <laughs> yeah 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 I think this is and he... my favourite child performance that Spielberg's gotten so far of like what we've yeah, watched. Yeah, I think like Henry Thomas is certainly up there, but there is something mm, that mm-hmm. what Bale's particularly being asked to put, what perspective he's being asked to put himself in here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, you can tell it's not really lost on him the gravity of the task at hand, yep. and it's no, it's no, yeah. no surprise that he matures into the. Um, intense dramatic actor that we know him today and <laughs> is still an incredibly successful and very impressive actor to this day as well mm. there's there's no, no surprise of the longevity his career's had off the base of this yeah it's a it, i mean it's a very demanding role we're sort mm-hmm. of talking about like best best child performances and everything and i do really rate henry thomas henry thomas sorry in et as well but I, I feel like Christian Bale is having to do a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more here in terms of like, you're not just acting like as a child and acting as a child would act in these situations. You are having to face things that really no child should should have to face, but, but is. And you're having to deal with that and yet still give this childlike perspective at times. And I just think that he does that he does that so well. I mean, you're right. Yeah. It's clear watching this, like what he would go on to become and, and credit to Spielberg as well. Cause you there's this debate <laughs> with young actors. Yeah. <laughs> this debate with young actors, whether it's like the director's handiwork or the actors. And I think it's little column A, little column B. Yeah. I think it, it needs a good director to be able to work with children and talk to them in, in, such a way that you can get those performances out of them but without yeah. the natural talent it's not it's not gonna work yeah. um well and it's but yeah spielberg knows how to direct the kids yeah well and kristen <laughs> pointed out too she was like i just don't think i've ever realized how similar christian bale and leo have been for their entire careers yeah um because it's like <laughs> yeah. i mean this is like a this is like a what's eating gilbert grape 
level performance, right? Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. the exact same. And also in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Leo looks like Leo's head on a teenager's body. Like, it's just like <laughs> the same guy, but just like small. Um, and... small. <laughs> yeah. He's small. Yeah. <laughs> So it was just, yeah. it was funny because she was like, I think it was the youngest thing she's ever seen him in as well. I think most yeah. people's first introduction to him was probably, well, American Psycho, but Newsies. And yeah. um, he's like well uh, on his way to his 20s by that point, right? And um, mm. right? Little Women what? in the 90s. Oh, yeah, that, Little Women. I remember him yeah, in yeah, that. Yeah. He's Laurie in that. But that, that even that's mm. like, what, uh, six years after this. So he's very much... He's like a teenager then. <laughs> yeah. Because he was 12 when they made this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Six years later, he's, he's yeah. an adult at that point, essentially, legally um, in the States. But yeah. It, was, go ahead. Was this his first like major role? I was having to look at his yeah. IMDb, but sometimes it's a bit he hard had, to tell. He had done a play on with Rowan Atkinson on the West End, and he had been in a Anastasia miniseries, which is mm-hmm. what. um. Amy Irving no. <laughs> saw him in. Uh, <laughs> that led oh, her yeah. to recommend re- recommend him for to Spielberg. Um, mm. So okay, not yeah. not loads, not loads. <laughs> it's his first film. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's quite the leap, isn't it? And it's not just like <laughs> a small role. Like, yeah. cannot emphasize this enough. He is on the screen for. 95 percent of this film like (laughs) that's a lot you go from having no film experience to being the lead in a freaking steven spielberg film i mean it's a (laughs) what a way to start (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um returning cinematographer alan daviau um yeah his last last time Yeah. yeah his last collaboration with Spielberg, but he shot E.T. and The Color Purple, and uh, this movie, I think, might look the best out of the three of those. <laughs> I it's really, gorgeous, yeah. really yeah, love the way this movie looked, and it's, it didn't do this thing that I feel like is the tendency for most films that take place, most Western-made films that take place in Japan during World War II, which is just like, everything's orange! Um... And this is not that like this. It feels, you know, like a real place and it doesn't feel like they were just like, this is China or Asia during World War Two. Here's an orange filter. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, it feels like it's it's almost muted. Uh, It's almost the exact opposite of that. But it's it just feels so like lived in partially because they shot it somewhat in Shanghai but yeah. it it feels very lived in. It feels very real and raw. But the the way Davio conveys information shot to shot is really, 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 really good. Absolutely, and like you say, I think like a lot of that authenticity does come from being able to, particularly in the opening moments, being able to go to Shanghai to shoot this. I mean, this is the first time that an American film is shot being able was allowed to shoot in shanghai since the 1940s um but and even just beyond that he's the guy who's mastered that kind of childhood perspective in et but put Mm. on the larger canvas here it's it's i don't know it's sad that they don't work together again post this because um i think like 
this is I fully agree I think this is probably their most accomplished work together and um, both in these moments where it is more to towards kind of spectacle and or be it the kind of like sparks over the planes and the hangars and that very romantic look mm. at those and then there's some really haunting stuff particularly in the final third when these the camp the, the campmates are all making their way back to Shanghai and you see these very strange images of like thousands of possessions just in the middle of this oh, yeah. um, the stadium. Mm. stadium and just the way Shanghai's kind of fallen into this lawless um, ter- like terrifying land where Japanese occupiers are left but no one's come back in yet and it feels really unsafe and really quite terrifying that mm-hmm. and like something something at any point is going to kind of come out from the corner so that that balance of awe and terror that is such a through line throughout whole Spielberg's careers so evident here and so beautifully played f- largely through Davio's framings as well I believe Mm. Yep. Yeah, it was one of the nominations, one of the Oscar nominations, I believe, was for cinematography. And I'm like, I don't know what the other <laughs> the other nominations were that year, that but I feel to, like yeah. it should have yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, like won. <laughs> uh, cinematography, Hannibal Lecter. was Matawan by Haskell Wexler. Hope and Glory, Empire of the Sun, Broadcast News, and The Last Emperor, and The Last Emperor is what won. Right. Okay. That's interesting because that's quite a, I guess, a mm. similarly themed. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it's mm. it's really interesting looking at the the Oscars page for this because you had The Last Emperor, Empire of the Sun, and Full Metal Jacket, which I know is Vietnam, right. but it, like they all three came out in '87. Mm. And it's just really, and one of the one of the films that was nominated for best director was called Hellfire: A Journey from uh, Hiroshima. So um, right, interesting. Yep. Also, the film that won best live action short film is called Ray's Male Heterosexual Dance Hall, which is a great <laughs> name for anything. <laughs> <laughs> also interesting. Uh, Empire of the Sun. List. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Empire of the Sun. Also, most of the things that Empire of the Sun lost to was The Last Emperor, including mm. Best Original Score, um, which yeah, was yeah. David Byrne. Um, and John Williams was nominated twice this year for Best Original right. Score. He was nominated for Empire of the Sun and The Witches of Eastwick. Uh, I do like that score a lot. That's, good. That's a fun mm. score, The Witches of Eastwick score. Because it's a good point to like highlight John Williams's score because I think so for good. me it's 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 one of these ones that I love I love kind of listening to in isolation but I think it's slightly one of the reasons that um some of this feels a little overplayed for me in terms of the sure. kind of towards the yeah the bigger Spielberg um penchant penchant for wanting to get a bit schmaltzy I often feel the scores a yeah, little too yeah. big for the kind of more intimate nature of um jim's journey throughout a lot of this but isolated mm. i it's a it's a it's a beautiful arrangements composition everything that you expect from a john williams score i just think sometimes in practice mm. in the movie itself it feels a little a little too overplayed <laughs> no i think you're i think you are yeah. right about that 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 music that plays over the first like four years later montage of him running around 
like mm. trading with people <laughs> it feels a little too like whimsical for like hey this guy's been a prisoner for like this is yeah. this guy's been a <laughs> child prisoner for four years and it's like instead it's just like here's his like whimsical training He's a pioneer routine. of industry <laughs> yeah yeah exactly Ex- exactly <laughs> But the song itself yeah, is I, really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I can only echo what you guys are saying. Like I I have subsequently listened to because this is the first time I watched the film, I have subsequently listened to the score just on its own. Yeah. Since and it's really really great and I loved it more outside of the film than I totally did agree. inside of the film. Yeah. So I think I think that's the I think that is the reason why and I you do get it with a lot of John Williams, particularly John Williams Spielberg mm-hmm. scores. Like I freaking love the Hook score. <laughs> it's probably oh, it's one fantastic. of my favorite John yeah. Williams. <laughs> I mean, scores. I love the 1941 but... score. Yeah, yeah that's fun. it's incredible. <laughs> but like, but do I do I like them in the film? Not necessarily. <laughs> like it's, I mean that that whimsy works more for for Hook, sure. Yeah. But it. It just, yeah, there were there were moments in this where I was like, all right. I, I think when you become like very, very aware of the score being there, then it it can be a little bit of a distraction. That's yeah. not to say it's not good and it's not fitting what is happening because they do make that scene where he's, you know, uh, a, a titan of industry in the, the camp. They do make that a very whimsical <laughs> scene. So he's just he's fulfilling the brief. Yeah, yeah. He's doing what he's, doing he's what supposed nice. to yeah. do. <laughs> in that yeah, in that in that moment he's it's not he's not going off script at all because by this point Williams and Spielberg are, are working together very very effectively as yeah. as one unit. So it's not it's not jarring in that sense. I think it's I guess just those moments in the film score or otherwise are are a little jarring but are supposed to be i guess Mm -hmm. i i didn't find it as much of a problem as i did in the color purple because i don't i don't think at any point was it was really going for doesn't go for a comedy score at any point comedy yeah 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 it's not like let's have some fun and hijinks when this guy falls through the roof but actually he's like a real nasty (laughs) like a real nasty person like like, yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, very that. But there's, a, I think there's a difference between like comedy and whimsy, and I think this film is allowed to have whimsy because yeah. it being from a child's perspective. And just zipping back to the cinematography real quick, one of my favorite shots in the film is that I mean, it's on the the very pretty looking Spielberg uh, Spielberg <laughs> Steelbook cover mm. um, where Jim is like reaching up towards the towards the plane yeah um it's just it's so good it's so simple but this that sort of tells you everything you need to know about the film and i love when there is just that single shot in a film that is kind of like yeah that's yeah well that's going on the poster (laughs) yeah exactly yeah it's the poster shot it's like that's what this film is trying is trying to achieve it is a a child sort of the way that he looks at war being very, very different to how an adult would look at war or how perhaps we've seen war portrayed before. And that's what this film is selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I feel the need to pay at least a little bit of lip service to this. We are saying this, we were talking about this John Williams score 
on the heels of the final Spielberg Williams collaboration. Um, at time of record, <sighs> the Fablemans will open in U.S. theaters wide in two days. And uh, right, oh, I'm boy. excited. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, we have to uh, wait a little longer over here. So. <laughs> yeah, you, guys, you guys have to wait until January. Um, God damn it! I'm going. I'm going Wednesday night at 10:35 p.m. Um, to, That's to a lot. It's it. a long movie too. It's so long. It's so long. But this Thursday is Thanksgiving, so I don't have anywhere to be until right. noon that day of when course. I go back to the theater to watch Glass Onion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh i don't know i was immediately after we watched empire of the sun i had asked Kristen if she wanted to see the fablemans and she was like i don't know what that is and i was like then you haven't been paying attention to me for the last <gasps> six months um and uh so i showed her the trailer and the trailer one makes me cry every time yeah. <laughs> um, that trailer really makes me cry <laughs> kind of a lot um and then we we watched this uh, this interview with the cast where the guy asked them, like, w- he asked them three questions. He asked them, what's your favorite Spielberg movie? What's your favorite Spielberg-John Williams collaboration? And what's your favorite shot in any Spielberg movie? And I was like, well, that's the mm. hardest question to answer in the universe. <laughs> um, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. and the, but when he was framing the, the Spielberg-John Williams, he was like, you know, you're part of the last Spielberg-John Williams collaboration. And my heart, like, sank. Like I just, I, I, had, I, was just I didn't like, even oh, think my. to consider that that exactly. it might be the last one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so, because so, John Williams is retiring after Indiana Jones Five, so fair play. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he. Uh, this is this is it. The Fablemans is it, and it just like oh. it. It just feels like the perfect film for them to go out it on. Really together. does, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, because it's so for personal. Sure. But it's it's funny because. The Fablemans is two days away, and when I watched this movie, it was three days away. So I was very much watching this film through the lens of, like, every fucking movie Spielberg's made is about his parents' divorce. And this feels very much (laughs) in line with that, even though it's completely different. But it's about, like, this kid's relationship with his parents being dramatically altered due to, like, an earth-shattering event. Now, granted, the earth-shattering event is something that quite literally was earth shattering as far as like it was a world war, but he still makes it very personal to the child. And um, Mm. like it definitely, you can see how Spielberg was still processing this divorce, even, you know, this, I I think we're we're hitting the midpoint of his career at this point, I think. Yeah. Mm. Uh uh And he's still working it out, but (laughs) yeah, 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 for sure. I think even even to your yeah. point, um, Spielberg's father throughout the Second World War was a radio operator and a mm-hmm. gunner for the Air Corps and was mm-hmm. stationed, not not in this spirit of the war, he was stationed in India, I think. But um, he, he would have been around planes and clearly would have loved planes. And I imagine that probably bled into um, his son as well, particularly as a child. So even seeing the kind of mm-hmm. way that the planes are kind of treated and the and the real romanticism and hero worshiping of these figures and the planes themselves really does also speak to that relationship with Spielberg's own parents as well I think to your mm-hmm. point mm. yeah it's amazing to me how this is a story very personal to 
someone else. I mean, yeah. the I don't know how much how close the the film is to the to the book, but it is J.G. Ballard's story. I mean, mm-hmm. it's semi autobiographical. The 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 novel is at least so. This is someone else's story, but I hadn't really put those pieces together into sort of what you were just saying about Spielberg's films so many of his films being like about his his parents divorce so i was like wow <laughs> yeah. he's re- like it's not even a bad thing that he's like you know taken someone else's story and made it his yeah. own like not that at all but it's weird how a story that is so personal to someone else still feels so much like him i mean yeah. he's clearly a director who sort of looks at the films he is going to to make very very carefully and inject some of himself into those into those films but not in a way that sort of feels like gross or like he's making it all about himself because you do have to dig pretty deep into into this film to to mm. pull that out i think but it's it's absolutely there i mean yeah. it's there through so many of the films in this period i mean et Close Encounters, Sugarland Express, others I'm probably missing. Yeah, like a, a <laughs> it's child like being separated from their parents, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, there's this quote from Spielberg about this movie where he says, "My parents got a divorce mm. when I was 14, 15." The whole thing about separation is something that runs very deep in anyone exposed to divorce. Yeah, mm. uh, and mm-hmm. and to kind of go on your point from how this is someone's personal story to begin with 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 Ballard. Um, I think it's particularly interesting when you compare how the the book ends and the film ends and particularly how the reunion between the parents happens. Um, mm. cause, um, broadly, the um, the beats are kind of the, the same in their initial kind of meeting where Jim's in the orphanage and he can't remember their faces and these people coming up to them saying that, he, that they're his parents and he's you can't quite register the image and it takes a beat for it to kind of actually feel like, Oh yeah, these are my parents. And uh, a beautifully played moment by Bale, particularly that kind of slow dawning of these are arms. I recognize as being safe and belonging to my parents. But, uh, and, and I feel like Spielberg doesn't really want to, there is a touch of sadness to it, of course, because it's this kid who's really kind of been broken down and has lost that innocence and there's a quiet devastation to it where he can't recognize them but it's ultimately a lot happier than what the book delivers and i wonder if it's because of what spielberg's really trying to hold on to and like have that kind of like slight slight more wish fulfillment of having this quite like um sweet moment of reunion um after years of separation because the the book is quite cold afterwards when it really details a bit more about Jim and his parents then leaving and how their relationship is almost non-existent because he can tell his parents have been equally changed by Mm -hmm. the experiences that they've gone through throughout Mm -hmm. this this Mm -hmm. time that they've been away and there's just like there's there's something that's completely there's uh, something between them all now that will never they'll never be able to cover because they haven't experienced what they've experienced together so I find it's a very interesting change, Whoa. I think, between the two endings. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I, to completely kind of change the subject, but since we're talking about Ballard, the man himself, uh, yesterday I learned in our record 
uh, for the movie Robcast, Sarah, that this man grew up and wrote Crash. Um, he did. <laughs> so I did not know that. And then I got to explain that to my wife, who was like, that sounds like a gross movie. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Anyway, this guy wrote the thing that that's based on. Yeah, important clarification. The car sex one, not yes. the... Yeah, uh, yeah, not the not poor the racist <laughs> You do car always sex. have to make that distinction. Yeah. You do. <laughs> yeah. Cause definitely, because Kristen was like, I thought that movie was about, like, racist cops. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, very different. I was like, that's a different movie called Crash. Yeah. Let's... I I imagine some like poor, unsuspecting, possibly older person wanting to like watch the prestigious Oscar nominated films. Oscar winning the year best picture. Th- yeah, ugh, don't remind me. The, uh, <laughs> the, like the year that Crash was nominated or subsequently winning, <laughs> and then like accidentally picking up the other crash and being like, well, <laughs> I've made a mistake. Well, the Academy's re- making some really bold decisions. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, I, I think about it as like, I took a lot of film classes online and they would just give you a list of films to watch. Um, mm-hmm. I would see like, because I don't think any film instructor in their right mind would assign Crash 2006 to uh, to their, no. their students, but I could see one assigning well. Like, <laughs> Uh, oh, the, no. the, other, the other crash um potentially it's funny you say that oh no <laughs> oh, oh no when i st- well, that's that's uh how i know slash came to be aware of uh, crash the car sex film because uh i we i was assigned it in um, my media studies class as like a controversial film no that's the one i'm saying crash 2006 is the racist oh okay i I could see i could see a film instructor assigning the car sex crash i could not see them assigning the racist cops crash yeah and uh yes 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 yeah uh, but i could see like i think it would be even funnier as someone who took online classes to be assigned the car sex one and then go and watch the racist one and then come back to this discussion and be like what the fuck are people talking about here yeah it's like i didn't see that at all yeah do i need to rewatch did I fall asleep? <laughs> yeah, important to get those two the right way, the right way around. Yeah. But yeah, I, I have you read the book, Andy? It sounds like I you have. Um, yeah, um, back when yeah. we did this last summer um, mm. on Rambling, mm. I, I I do my best to try and re- if it's based on the book, I'll do my best to uh, read the book ahead of, ahead of the record if I have the time. But um, this was one that I very much. Um, I, and just generally, I find that like this particular point in history fascinating. And even on um, for Ballard, this is such an outlier in his um, bibliography because he's 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 the Ballardian guy. He's a he's a sci-fi writer. He's mm-hmm. not a mm-hmm. wartime um, or even like uh, someone who really writes in the mode of uh, semi-autobiography. It's like, and this is just one that really sticks out amongst everything else because along with Crash he wrote like uh, High Rise that was adapted in oh, 2015 yeah, yeah, yeah. by yeah. Ben Wheatley and um, I think the closest I've read a couple of others by him I read The Drowned World as well which is a sci-fi novel from a post-apocalyptic sci-fi from uh, the early 60s but it's interesting kind of comparing the imagery of uh, this war-torn post-apocalyptic world that's got like sunken cities and debris everywhere and then comparing it to the way both the book writes about and the film depicts 
Shanghai, particularly um, at the end of the war, where it is in this kind of limbo space of no one really occupying it and falling into that lawlessness because it's so easy to kind of see the tra the tracks and the the way it lines up with his what would have been his war his, his experience as a young man wandering this city and how that has bled even into his sci-fi work so i found it very interesting to kind of have those two ideas of ballard in my head and then reading the book and being like oh okay this is why you've written certain images the way you have <laughs> yeah i was not that familiar with uh his work so like i said yesterday when the robs were like oh yeah he wrote he wrote crash right and i was just like what like that it's, it's, <laughs> like, cause this is this is the this is the only frame of reference i have for the man so this, hmm. the, the, it was like this the, the the crash thing was way more outside his wheelhouse for what i i uh i knew about him but um you know when i when after i got done telling kristen that she was like it kind of makes sense that that person would become a sci-fi writer just to like yeah escape. for sure <laughs> um because yeah. <laughs> even yeah because i mean he talks about like mm. sorry go on no i think you're probably going to say a similar point to what i'm going to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah he talks about how how much this affected him like th for the rest of his sure. life yeah basically doesn't he yeah. i was i was reading some stuff and i mean it would <laughs> it's a pretty traumatic thing to go through so it's not a surprise that you know writing about fantastical things or sci-fi mm -hmm. inflected <laughs> stories as a as a form of escapism is a that's the way to do it yeah. i mean <laughs> something traumatic happened in your past like why go to therapy when you can write a weird ass book <gasps> i think he's even said like he can't eat sweet potatoes like like he can't, oh. can't see them in shops and he can't see them he said it was so weird seeing them come in as a as a new supermarket item in the 80s in the UK and being like, nope, not mm. doing that. Sorry, I can't I can't stomach the idea wow. of ever eating a sweet potato again. Wow, yeah, I mean that makes hmm. a ton of sense. Yeah, you wouldn't, mm -hmm. would you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I already don't like sweet potatoes, so. Ah, <laughs> oh, they're they're pretty good. I'm a fan. I'm I mean, a fan, but like you know. I... Yeah. <laughs> I can love yeah, and prepare them with scale. olive oil and what have you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine if it had been all you were given uh, yeah. in a situation like this, that you would not want to consume it at some point going forward. But yeah, <laughs> I think even to him speaking about his motivation to put this finally the actual story to paper, it's. Um, because of having children really and having them grow up and then him realizing if i don't write this down now i'm gonna forget and then they'll never know about it and it's such a fundamental part of my life that makes me who i am and that mm -hmm. kind of um sense of l passing on lessons and passing on perspective is something that i think the film really does honor as well particularly in the way one, the way it casts Jim with having someone like Christian Bale be able to hold that the screen in quite the way he does, and in it is for the most part really quite true to the sense and particularly the the feel and level of detail that Ballard puts in to the novel. So, and he was he was quite happy with it as well. So that's always nice to hear. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he was like really happy with Christian Bale's performance. Yeah. 
Yeah, the pressure to get someone's uh, yeah. story <laughs> right as well. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Do you guys have anything? I feel like there's a lot to talk about in this film, but also we've kind of covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, have you guys had anything else that you wanted to mention about it, or anything that particularly stood out? Um, I think mm. that. Well, I, I, I think that, that obviously we see Spielberg evolving, right, into historical fiction guy. We're skipping always, so the next episode will be, uh, well, I guess technically historical fiction as well, right? Um, uh, maybe <laughs> the last sure. But uh, I, I guess this isn't historical fiction, but historical drama is what I'm trying to say. And uh, mm-hmm. I feel like you can really see him become the guy who makes Schindler's List in this movie. Like, yeah, for sure. By, yeah. by the end of it. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes this movie made was being PG. Um, mm. I don't think mm-hmm. any war movie should be anything other than a hard R. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> because that shit sucks. And uh, it's not, you mm. know, squeaky clean. And I think this is less prone to it than Color Purple. But it still has some of those sort of I don't want to say bad habits but it's it's less confident in like it, you can just tell he's he's learning still and yeah. mm-hmm. i think it's really fascinating especially by the end once you see what christian bale goes through like as a, as a performer mm-hmm. and how that would play if he made this film after schindler's list um where it's just like oh he would really lean into like not even being cruel to this kid, I think, but just like really portraying what was actually going on in these sort of internment camps. You know, like if you have a, even sort of a sense of history about what the Japanese army was doing around this time, like it was brutal, brutal stuff. Mm. And like, I can't imagine that wasn't happening in this camp. Um, so I think that this this is what keeps the film at arm's length from being one of the great Spielbergs. It's not bad and it's better than color purple in that regard. But I think, I think that the PG decision was kind of a huge misstep. Mm. Yeah. I think you come yeah. in, I get what you mean. Like there's a, I, and I understand the kind of tension that one might feel in terms of, wanting to make something like this a PG by having it be child perspective and mm-hmm. wanting a younger audience to see it, but also not feeling like you're having to hold your punches, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think probably does particularly seep into this during particularly the moments in the camp more so, because I do think the moments of separation and um, in the opening act are done with quite a decent level of intensity. Yes. But um, I agree for the camp part. But um, again, it, it kind of speaks to how what I kind of opened up with my feeling towards this film. I think I do think it's one of his more underrated, and it, it is such a crucial stepping stone. I feel, as you were saying there, uh, NJ, about from that feeling a little awkward with something like the color purple to going into something like Schindler's List. It doesn't happen without mm. this the growing pains yeah. well even even the pow <laughs> stuff right because it's it's technically yeah. what was happening mm-hmm. right like 
in like the, the the Schindler's List is it's essentially a POW story, um, mm. and so you have this, and I almost feel like he needs that distance from because obviously Schindler's List is very personal since he's a Jewish man. Of course, um, I almost feel like he needs the distance to make a POW story about World War Two, but about the Japanese theater rather than jumping right into you know a holocaust drama right like this is yeah this is much mm-hmm. more personal to him and his family and his history um than i i would argue almost anything else he's made until the fable wins um and so <laughs> i i think that even just making a prisoner of war story that does not have to deal with the cultural things that he deals with in Schindler's List is the very personal cultural things that he deals with in Schindler's List is super necessary for him to have like go in with not just the respect. I think he was always going to be respectful if he made that film before Empire of the Sun, but the, the knowledge of how to tell the story, how Mm -hmm. not to pull punches, how to depict the horrors of this and to kind of commit to it, even though I'm sure it was, you know, we'll talk about it. I'm sure on the Schindler's List episode, but, like, how harrowing even recreating those things was for everyone involved, I would assume. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that he's a mature enough filmmaker yet to do that. And this film made him that. Yeah. yeah. It's a very crucial, yeah. crucial title in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying in that this this film did feel a little sanitized yeah. in places, mm-hmm. a little too a little too clean. But I I was surprised to see it was a PG because I just thought thematically, yeah. like it does deal with some quite heavy stuff. But I guess when you're looking at the meat and potatoes, pardon the pun of it, that you meat and sweet potatoes are. <laughs> the meat and the sweet potatoes are that you are sort of looking at you know the content of the film like and there isn't really anything that could push it uh above a pg there's the brief sort of blood on the mango towards mm-hmm. the end um but it's so brief i don't i don't think that would be enough to mm-hmm. to do it but yeah I, I i give it a pass for being sanitized because it is supposed to be a child's perspective and and in a way, like protecting children from the true horrors of war is one of you know the things you are trying to do. They shouldn't be exposed to these these things, and and he is, and he is exposed to some bad things. But I think it's quite deliberate that we don't see all of that. That we're sort of seeing the the cleaned up version yeah. of that. And it, it, I, I mean, how accurate it is to to sort of like real history and stuff we'll we're gonna get into that in another episode that we'll we'll talk about in a bit but um certainly is it uh to be used in an educational sense i think making this film a pg makes sense yeah. uh in in that regard mm-hmm. like you you could show it to children of a certain age mm-hmm. but you could show it to children and sort of they could i think learn something from it and find something of themselves in it as well yeah which is quite important obviously in the the perspective that the film has but yeah it's what we've said with you know this series that we've been doing so far is i think more than any other time in spielberg's career in this sort of early first part of his career 
you can really see those building blocks and sort of learning the lessons from the previous films watching sort of the color purple and empire of the sun in in relatively quick succession as well you can see the improvement even from one to the Mm. other lessons learned in terms of like the how to tell this story and and the way it should be told and you only see him improve on that over time that's not to say that like you know he every single time he makes a better film than the one previously because he made his best film in 1975 that's just that's just my opinion (laughs) because by that logic you know each film the next one that comes out should be the greatest film of all time and maybe it will be i don't know haven't seen the fablemans yet but yeah so interesting to see the cogs turning yeah. <laughs> for Spielberg yeah. at this time in his career is like is figuring stuff out and he he wasn't in the the right place or mature enough to sort of make the Schindler's list yet but you can see from this where that would come from and where other films like Save Private Ryan as well would would come from that do go into more of the horrors of war yeah Um, and it's interesting that you. this wasn't the time for that it's interesting that you brought up that it's for education like this this movie could be used in an educational setting to talk about the japanese theater uh because um schindler's list and saving private ryan are both staples of the american high school classroom when learning about world war ii Mm. right and they're r-rated movies which means you have to Mm. send home a permission slip uh for parents to sign or kids to forge um (laughs) and and bring back in order to show those films yet they are so important like they are deemed so important in the 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 depiction of like those of of world of the european theater of world war ii that teachers around the country find it necessary to do that like it's so that's so interesting yeah. to me that like the hassle of having the type of permission slip explain all the content that's in the film send it out like kids who for whatever reason their parents won't let them watch it find something else for them to do send them to the library whatever like it's worth the hassle for for teachers to go through that here um and it just i think it just solidified i hadn't even considered this since we've been doing the podcast but it solidified so much what a presence he has been in american culture because i've talked talked about how spielberg more than likely directed your first favorite movie or probably your current favorite movie because (laughs) it's either raiders or jaws or et or jurassic park and the other thing too is like he probably you know particularly for american kids in the public education system probably directed the two movies you remember the most watching in school we're watching it ours <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. it definitely like the tone was just like holy shit we're watching a violent movie this is awesome like it, i don't know if we're getting the, i don't know if we're getting the right lessons out of that um i think the schindler's list kid i was never in a schindler's list classroom i all my all my american history teachers showed um saving private ryan uh the schindler's list the opening to What's that? Ryan a lot at school. Mm. We watched the opening for mm. Ryan a lot at school. Never yeah. really got beyond that, but always the really most the the most violent. Part yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that, that was a different too. I think the Schindler's List kids got it a little bit more. It's like it's much more somber. Not that Saving Private Ryan isn't somber. Yeah, but like the 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 complete you know the the atrocity on display in that film is much greater than 
in Saving Private Ryan. Um, whereas, like, Saving Private Ryan is obviously harrowing in its own right, but it has action scenes in it. Like, that's, you don't, like, you can't, yeah. you have, you developed some empathy as a teenager, but you haven't quite gotten 100% there yet, you know? So, so like, when you watch the, <laughs> the first, the opening scene to Saving Private Ryan in school, there's, first and foremost, it's just like, we're watching an action movie in school. And it's like, well, yeah, it's an action sequence, but I don't know if it's an action movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't. Uh, we didn't watch anything uh, remotely cool <laughs> when I was in school until we got to. I got to A level media, and then I was told to watch Crash. Crash. <laughs> yeah, I actually. Uh, Empire of the Sun. I had to watch for the only in person film class that I ever took. So that's that's how I had yeah. seen it previously. But that was two thousand eight. So that was forever. I didn't remember shit about this movie until I watched it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A first watch for me. I would, unlike The Color Purple, which I was like, I don't know if I would ever be in the mood to watch that film yeah. again because it's not as good. And also some of it is very upsetting and hard to watch. Mm. Um, but this, I could see myself being in the mood to watch empire of the sun again mm. at some point in the future because i feel like there's there's so much in it and i i usually like to try and watch the film twice before talking about it on the podcast but because it's so it's dang long, long. the <laughs> same with the color purple as well i only got to watch it once so i i feel like there's some stuff that i'm that i'm missing from it so i would see myself watching it again i think in a few years i'm yeah. not you know rushing to go and watch it again because there is still some stuff in it that is, you know, pretty heavy. Not, not fun to, to watch. Yeah, I know. So, it's, yeah. it's interesting because I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, this would be the most depressing double feature, but it would be really interesting to watch this and Schindler's List back to back to kind of see where mm. he learned. But I don't know, like, I don't know that I could watch those films strictly from the craft point of view. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to and especially like disconnect in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you if you did that double bill, Schindler's List being the second one, it's like at least this has like a slightly uplifting, yeah. uh, mm. a, a few more uplifting moments, I guess. But yeah, that's a well, we're a, I feel like we're a long way off Schindler. Well, I mean, we don't know when we're going to cover Schindler's yeah. List because the 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 future will be in the hands of the listeners <laughs> to decide our next season yeah. uh it's we're gonna take a break from spielberg regardless i think because uh i think spielberg if we're gonna cover every film it'll take it's like four seasons mm-hmm. worth so four seasons right. of 10 episodes worth so uh we're not just gonna back <laughs> back to back with the spielbergs we'll take a little break on the next one i think and do whatever yeah. whatever people decide maybe we'll talk about shark tale or maybe we'll talk about <laughs> Sorcerer. Please talk about Shark Tale. <laughs> it's <on our list. laughs> it sure is. It sure is. Uh, I know what I I'm going for. I think I kind of just did that. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I weirdly feel like that one will be quite popular, but we need to find someone who like likes it. Yeah. <laughs> like unashamedly yeah. likes it. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Well, we will get to all of that uh, fun and frivolity eventually. But uh, yeah, we put out a, <laughs> put out a tweet again for thoughts on Empire of the Sun. I'm not surprised that we didn't get any back because I do feel like it is 
like the color purple a film not many people mm. have seen uh but um we did get a tweet from uh chris uh who is at hood cp um who just said that we'll be getting his thoughts another time Ooh, cryptic uh but <laughs> but uh please note that the depiction of seeing the flash from the nagasaki atomic bomb was impossible mm. uh so <laughs> i guess a little artistic license uh, yeah. Yeah. on spielberg's part used in that in that moment uh but speaking of chris we are gonna uh, get into more about Empire of the Sun and bringing back our good pal 1941 uh, to talk <laughs> about again uh, as uh, for a Patreon episode as, as Chris is uh, somewhat of an expert on all things Japan so we're going to do a real deep dive into that's a weird Spielberg's double bill as well Japan I am not rewatching. I'm not rewatching 1941 I'll watch some clips of it that will be enough for me but um bless him he is watching it for the i believe for the first time to be prepared <laughs> for the podcast and is watching it in stages because he's finding it so uh hard to get through uh absolutely can relate to that but yeah we'll be talking about uh the very different portrayals mm. of uh japan and sort of this period of the war across those two films so i think there'll be a really really interesting discussion absolutely. it'll be good to have great. someone who is yeah uh, much more knowledgeable than, um, than so I know on the history. And... Somewhat of an expert. Isn't he like a doctor of Japanese history? <laughs> yeah, he sure okay. is. Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I feel like you downplayed that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, we'll, we'll get all of his credentials when he, when he comes on the episode. But yeah, when I say somewhat of an expert, a lot of an expert, <laughs> more of an expert than, than we could hope yes. to be. So very much looking forward to learning lots in that episode and we'll let you guys know when when that goes out it will be a, a patreon episode so december if you want to listen to it lovely stuff yes it'll be december's december's patreon episode so if you want to listen to that you know what you gotta do uh <laughs> speaking of patreon uh, a shout out of course to our patrons uh they are <clears throat> i have to take a deep breath before the list they are Jack, Cameron, Callum, Griff, Mike, Katie, Rachel, Andrew, Blake, Chris, Kerry, Eric, and Uncut Gems podcast. A uh, big thank you to those guys for their support. Yes, very much. Also, uh, patrons, if you're listening, on the day this comes out, this weekend you will get your November um, episode. I know it's kind of late in the month for that, and I'm sorry, but it is like a three-hour podcast so um <laughs> in multiple parts so i i just yeah. have not had time to edit it but this week uh with the thanksgiving holiday i am planning on editing that so uh this comes out the 25th you should be able to hear it probably i'll hedge my bets and say the 27th but i'm aiming for the 26th <laughs> um yeah other than that uh, andy thank you so much for coming back uh, and, Absolute and pleasure. This, Thank you for having me. Us. Yeah, of course. Uh, do you have anything you would like to plug? Um, I, I myself run a, like I said earlier, a Spielberg adjacent podcast, a Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast, where we go through all the films that fall under the Amblin' Entertainment banner. At the time of recording, we're just about to release our episode on Little Giants. Um, All right. The Thanksgiving weekend weirdly feels quite uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite fitting. <laughs> uh, Rick, Rick Moranis, Rick Moranis, and Ed O'Neill. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. broad sports comedy from yes. the mid nineties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tried to but, cash um, in yeah, on so that it, the Sandlot. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're we're very much uh, right in the right in the weeds of Ambulin at the minute, right in the mid nineties. So we're about to get some to some real good stuff as well. So you can find that podcast wherever you get your wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow. The podcast should Twitter still be going? It's a, <laughs> at Ramblin Amblin. Yeah. Um, I myself am at Andy Godian ninety three, and you can also find me on Letterbox under Andy Godian as well. So find out what I've been watching outside of both within and without a podcast uh, episode coming up. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, for as long as Twitter's a thing, you can find the show on there um, <laughs> at Jaws for a minute. Um, you can also find us on Instagram or Finstagram. My apologies on Finstagram uh, at Jaws for a minute as well. Um, or if you're not on either one of those, uh, which it seems like a lot of us won't be on at least one of those soon, um, <laughs> you can you can email us at jaws for a minute at gmail.com. Um, and you can follow us, uh, your hosts individually on Twitter, as long as it's a thing, um, at MJSmith891. That's also my Instagram handle. So if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, at MJSmith891. Um, and then on for Sarah, it's at Sarah Buttery, S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y. Sarah, do you want me to give out your Instagram as well? Okay. Yes, it's the same as Twitter, just slap an underscore in the middle yep. of the... Sarah... <laughs> between first name Sarah and second name. <laughs> underscore Buttery on, on Instagram. Yes. Um, so, yep. Uh, <laughs> on all of those social media platforms uh, that you choose to follow us on, you can find a link tree and the link tree has some important links to one listen to the show um and to support us uh <clears throat> monetarily um so you can uh purchase merch from t public or Redbubble, which is you know holidays are coming up get your family <laughs> and loved ones podcast merch that will make them really confused <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> You can also purchase our theme song uh, through Bandcamp, and uh, the November Patreon uh, episode is uh, partially an interview with the uh, person behind that, my wife, Kristen. Um, she wrote and recorded our absolute banger of a theme song, and if you would like to hear it in its entirety, it will be on the Patreon episode. Um, and... Uh, the other part of that is an interview with the person who is the reason why you can buy our merch. Um, Alex, right? Alex, did I get his name right? Okay. Yes. Oh my God. I, I, I said that name and was like, that's not right. Um, but yeah, Alex, uh, Alex, uh, designed both of our incredible, uh, logos that we have on our merch. And so the first half of the podcast is a conversation with him, uh, about the nature of design. It kind of ended up being about the nature of creating, um, uh, mm -hmm. both, both episodes ended up being about the nature of creating, but like graphic design versus music. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interviews with those two. If you've ever wanted to know like the thought processes behind our, uh, graphic design or our theme song, that's our Patreon episode this month. So, uh, yeah. Um, also link to our Patreon is right there as well. If you would like to su subscribe, it's patreon.com slash jaws for a minute. Um, you can also just give us one-time donations if you would like, uh, through our coffee page and if you donate if you're a first-time donator you are a donor gosh i say donator so much if you're a first-time donor <laughs> you can uh donate through our coffee page and you'll be entered to win a piece of merch once we hit a certain donor goal um and it no extra cost you can rate review and subscribe on whatever 
platform you listen to podcast podcasts on um i think we're on everything except amazon right now um i'll try to get the show mm-hmm. on amazon somewhat soon uh if you are an amazon music user uh but you can also just share the show with uh people if you you know i think this season in particular there's probably something for everyone um like i said spielberg's directed probably your favorite movie or at one, what at one time was your favorite movie so um yeah you can share episodes i think much more easily this season than instead of being like here listen to these people talk about this specific minute of jaws um <laughs> of us talking about a whole film so uh yeah thank you guys so much for the support uh if if it's if it's you just came off uh, a very food-centric holiday uh, I hope your leftovers <laughs> are delicious. And until next time, it's John's o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Food-centric holiday. <laughs>